When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Well, we're going to spend our next little while reflecting on this text together. There's a famous poem by John Updike that goes around this time of the year. It's called Seven Stanzas at Easter. Maybe you've heard of it. If you haven't, it's worth Googling and reading this afternoon. But I'll give you just the very first section of the poem. It goes like this. Make no mistake. If he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecule renit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. And Updike's point in the, in the poem is to emphasize the realness of the re- resurrection, to, to recognize what he calls the monstrosity of a man coming back to life, never to die again. If we are going to believe in Easter Sunday, if we're going to believe in the resurrection, then Updike argues poetically, let's go all the way. Let's have a real resurrection. But it is interesting, at least to me, that none of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, narrate a description of the resurrection. It's prophesied in advance, it's foreshadowed in a number of ways, Uh, then it's announced and preached about afterwards as fact, but nowhere do the gospel writers answer the questions that one might have. I personally would like to know, did he awake with with a loud gasp, you know, like like in the movies, or were were angels there? Did his heart begin to beat first, or did some microprocesses in one of his cells, did that happen first? What time did he rise? By what means, in what form? I also have some strange questions about clothing. We, we know the grave clothes were left behind, so what was his resurrected body wearing? See, after, based on some other post-resurrection appearances, he wasn't naked, so he got clothes from somewhere, but where, where did he get them from? What did they look like? Questions upon questions. And the Bible leaves us hanging on most of them. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 no. Oh, maybe yes, you know. Uh, Apparently, God didn't think it necessary that we have most of these answers, but questions are how I want to frame our time together this morning. Three questions you might have had, and I have, when we read the account of the resurrections. Here are my three. First, did he rise? Second, where did he go? And third, where will you go? So first, did he rise? If you can recall, Jesus was crucified on a Friday. He died late in the day. Traditionally, Jewish Jewish Sabbath ran from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. So by the time Jesus died, they didn't have much time to prepare the body for burial. And according to the end of chapter 15, we, we didn't read it, but they placed his body in a tomb. They rolled a stone across the opening to protect it. Tombs outside of Jerusalem were horizontal, not vertical, cut into the rock like a cave. 
And it's likely the tomb would have had a number of shelves, maybe one near the opening as a place to work, a place to prepare bodies, and maybe further back in the tomb would have been, you know, shelves or alcoves or openings in which the body can be placed. But I say that because the end of chapter 15, verse 47 tells us Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph and James, they were there when the body was laid in the tomb. So whatever the tomb was exactly like, they saw where the body was laid. And then Mary and Mary and the other women and the disciples, they all go home to what would have been the worst Sabbath day in history. Earth, Easter Saturday, one of those days that was quiet and still and too quiet and too still. If you've ever been around a family that's lost a loved one, you'll know the feeling that's in those kind of rooms. There's, not, there's talk, but it's not really good talk. There's noise, but not that much noise. Everyone's tired and, and numb and in a kind of shock. And so Easter Saturday, we can presume, just dragged by. And in verse 1 of chapter 16, where our reading picks up, it's now Sunday morning, the Sabbath is over, the same women are back on their way to the tomb, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, and Salome, they have preparations to finish up, Uh, they, they have spices, they might have some fragrances to anoint his body for burial, different things. And according to verse 2, it was very early, sorrow wakes early. It's hard to sleep in, it's hard to rest when there are preparations to make for burial, But the sun is rising, they are walking to the tomb. But they are worried because the large rock that enclosed the tomb was likely going to be too hard for them to move. People in sorrow often forget details. That numbness takes away our normal ability to make plans, and the women haven't quite thought this through. Their plan, apparently, is just to hope for the best. But when they arrive, the stone is rolled back, and as the women enter the tomb, a young man is sitting there. And tells them, don't be alarmed, for Jesus is risen and not there. And presumably with a gesture tells them, remember the place you laid him? Remember that shelf, that alcove? It's empty. And he's risen. Now that's how the Christian story goes. That's what Mark tells us. So that's what happened. But how can we know for sure? Did he really rise? Maybe you're wondering that this morning. I'll give you two pieces of evidence to consider if you find yourself in this sort of more skeptical place. And the first piece of evidence is the empty tomb. Now, this has always been one of the strongest Christian claims that the tomb was empty, because in fact, the earliest theories circulated in opposition to the Christian story uh, that Christ was alive was the theory that that someone just stole the body, the disciples maybe. So critics claimed very early on, well, he didn't rise. It was the disciples who took the body, and they just made up the story they claimed he did. But this theory actually assumes two things. First, that everyone knew where he had been buried— and that the tomb was in fact empty. Presumably, if they knew where he was buried, and and they could go back to the tomb, and they could say, look, there he is, he's on his shelf, you know, and prove beyond a a doubt that he hadn't been raised, but they never did that. Even the very fiercest opponents of Christianity and of Jesus didn't dispute the empty tomb. Now, over time, there's been some controversy about where the exact tomb of Jesus is. Is it in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre? Is it the so-called garden tomb? Uh, you can, we, we can fight about it afterwards. I have a, I have a little bit of an opinion. I, I don't think it matters. I think what matters is these people knew. The Romans knew. The chief priests and the Pharisees knew. The disciples knew. The two Marys, Salome, they, they all knew. And they believed the tomb was empty. So whichever way you want to critique the Easter story, you must wrestle with the fact that the tomb was empty. He was not there Easter morning. He is either risen or you need another explanation. Second piece of uh, evidence is the eyewitnesses. This account, you're saying, well, it's of course dependent on a few eyewitnesses, namely the two Marys and Salome. Without them, 
How would we have known that the tomb was open, that there's an angel there, that these instructions were given? It's because of these women's testimony we have such details. And that in itself is kind of strange because in the first century in Judaism, the testimony of women had no legal standing, simply didn't count. If you were going to be convicted of a crime, there had to be two male witnesses to testify. Three women, even if they're all telling the exact same story, were not enough. My point is, if you were inventing a story, hey, we're going to make up this miracle, it's going to be great, we can start a new religion, this isn't the way you do it. It would not have been trustworthy, it would not have been believed, which makes it all the more believable, weirdly. The truth is stranger than fiction. History happens in unlikely ways. If it just had been two male disciples, maybe it would have seemed more contrived, more artificial, but you wouldn't write the story like this if you were starting from scratch. Yet, of course, the scriptures and Jesus have a different standard than early Judaism. It's striking that Jesus chooses three women to be the first witnesses of the resurrection. They get to go first. They they get to know first. They got to see the angel. They got to be the ones to pass on the instructions to the disciple. Women have an important role. They always have played in the kingdom of God. They're not supporting actors. They are here at the main, uh, here at the resurrection, they are the main actors, If you were starting a new religion in Israel in the first century, or what eventually became the first century, you wouldn't have done it this way, and that's precisely what gives the story credence. So did he rise? Well, the empty tomb, the testimony of the women, are solid evidence he did. Does that answer all our questions? (laughs) No, of course not. But they are good reasons to believe. And this question is important. A little while ago, I came across a Twitter poll by a prominent evangelical writer, and he was asking Christians, you know, who follow him or whatever, would it change everything or anything if you had definitive proof that Jesus did not rise from the dead? And the majority said it would not change anything. Now, look, it's Twitter, so who knows what people actually think, you know, take it with a a fairly large grain of salt, but that's incorrect. That's not correct. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he makes an extended argument. If Christ has not been raised, then Christians are to be pitied. That's what he said. If Christ is not raised, uh, all the sin that we talk about, that's still a problem. If Christ has been raised, none of these other teachings matter. Uh, The Apostle Paul stakes everything on the resurrection. So John John Updike is right. Either the amino acids rekindled and the molecule re-knit, or we're just playing a religious game here. If you're going to believe in Easter, if you're going to believe in the resurrection, you may as well go all the way. Don't waste any of your time with sentimentality. So did he rise? The empty tomb and the women say he did. Part two. Where did he go? So the women get to the tomb. They talk to this young angel. He tells them a few different things. He says, don't be alarmed. People are normally alarmed, you know, when an angel shows up. He tells them he knows who they're looking for, the Jesus of Nazareth. And I always find it sort of funny that he's like specifically the one who was crucified, as if there was multiple, you know, or whatever. But he says, but he's not here. He's risen. Uh, And again, he sort of gestures to the point or the place where Jesus had previously lay. And then he says this. This is what I want to focus on. He says, go tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him, just as he told you. So the angel enlists women in a task. He says, go, go tell the disciples to go to Galilee to find Jesus. But it remains a question with me, at least. Where is Jesus right now? When the angel is speaking with the women, where is he? Well, we don't know. <laughs> we, we never get an answer to that question either. We, we don't know where he is when the women visit the tomb. All we are told is that he is going before the disciples into Galilee. Now, why Galilee? 
That's where it all began. That's where Jesus' ministry began, and that's where this next chapter will begin. But I want to focus in on two details that help us understand where Jesus is or kind of what he's up to. The first is that Jesus is going public. If you were here last Sunday or if you tuned in or heard it, uh, Jesus, I explained how Jesus is moving from a private ministry to a public one. The triumphal entry into Jerusalem was this beginning of him going public, changing the way he did ministry. And now when the women get this exciting news, the same is true. It's, it's public news. They're going to go tell the disciples who will be soon instructed to tell everyone, everywhere, the news about Jesus. So to answer our question, where is Jesus now? He's laying the groundwork for a great public ministry. This very first telling of resurrection news to disciples will precede hundreds and thousands of tellings of pronouncements of the good news in the months and years to come. And when the apostles soon begin to go city to city with the news of Jesus, they will stand up not in like little, little corner rooms, but in marketplaces and courts and public venues of all kinds to announce that Jesus Christ is alive. And a church will take shape publicly as groups of believers gather to worship and pray and to do, do works of mercy. And from the resurrection morning until now, uh, those who believe are under the same kind of compulsion to publicly declare that the resurrection is real and Christ is alive. And Christianity was never intended to be a private faith, but a public one. So where is Jesus? He's being publicly pronounced as the risen Lord. But secondly, where is Jesus? He is going before his people. The disciples are to be told, he's going before you into Galilee. He'll meet you there. And smart Greek scholar people will tell you, this verb, going before, it's sometimes used of army commanders. And you might picture sort of a great multitude of soldiers being led onto the field by their commander. That's what Jesus says he is doing. He is going before them to Galilee. He is leading them into some great new mission. And this instruction precedes what we call the Great Commission, where Jesus promises wherever his people go to make disciples, wherever they baptize, wherever they they teach obedience to the gospel, he will be with them to the very end of the age. And have you ever thought about what that means for you? Have you ever pondered the fact that if you are a Christian, Jesus goes before and with you? A couple of years ago, a band called The Porter's Gate wrote a song called Your Labor is Not in Vain. And it's based off this verse in 1 Corinthians where God promises his people, when you labor in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. But I want to read the second verse in the chorus to you. It goes like this. They, they sing, your labor is not in vain, though the rocks they cry out and the sea... Or sorry, your labor is not unknown. It's not, not going to rhyme if I read it wrong. Your labor is not unknown, though the rocks they cry out and the sea it may groan. The place of your toil may not seem like a home, but your labor is not unknown. And the chorus brings in what we've been speaking about from this passage, sort of God singing over his people, for I am with you, I am with you, I have called you by name, I have called you by name, your labor is not in vain. See, friends, if the risen Jesus is going ahead of his disciples, and if in the Great Commission he promises to go ahead and with us into any place imaginable, then he is with you right now wherever you are. As a man, Christ could only be sort of with one at a time, one place at a time. But as resurrected Lord, by the power of his spirit, he can be with all his people all at once. And so your labor, whatever it is right now, it's not unknown to him, but he sees you. And he sees you persevering, and he sees your suffering, and he sees your persistence, and he sees your late nights and your early mornings, and he sees you with difficult people. And he sees you having the same conversations over and over, and he sees your tears, and he sees your joys, 
and he is with you. And indeed, based on this, we can say he has actually brought you into those places. He's led you there. Your labor is not in vain because the resurrected Christ is with you. What a comfort. So where is Jesus? He's going with and ahead of his people, leading them into all kinds of places to the very end of the age. Part three, where will you go? Look down at verse eight. The women flee from the tomb, uh, seized with trembling and astonishment, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And this is where the gospel of Mark ends, basically. We have a seminar about this is longer thing, but don't worry about that right now, which, which if you think about it, is kind of a weird ending. If you read the other gospels, they don't end like this. They don't end with, or they end with a great commission, or they end with the ascension of Christ, or, or the, at the end of John, there's sort of like this, this benediction, this, this nice little way he ties it up. Not so with Mark. You know that the last words that Jesus speaks in the gospel of Mark is what we talked about on Good Friday, the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the last thing Jesus says in the gospel of Mark. And now here at the very end of the book, the women don't leave triumphantly or confidently. They flee from the tomb in confusion and fear. It says they are terrified into silence. This ending is strange. It's abrupt. It's awkward. Kind of leaves you hanging. And it's very similar to how parables work. If you know anything about parables, if maybe you remember the story of the prodigal son. It's about two brothers. That parable ends not with resolution, but with a cliffhanger. Does the older brother come into the party, yes or no? Remember the parable of the soils. The parable ends with an implied question. What kind of soil am I? Or, or how do I become the kind of good soil? Over and over, Jesus tells parables about the kingdom of God, and nearly all of them leave us with a question or leave us hanging. They invite us to ponder our place in the story. And I submit to you that Mark, under the leadership and guidance of the Spirit, is doing exactly the same. The abrupt ending is inviting you into the story. Because you read this and you're like, what happened? <laughs> Did the women change their mind? Did the disciples get this news? Did they get to Galilee? What happened in Galilee? Was Jesus there? The abrupt ending conscripts you. It signs you up. It draws you in. It pushes you to consider, what is my part in the story? So let me finish by offering sort of three options for your part in the story, what it could be. The first one is you can end up in guilt, shame, and absence like the disciples. Now, if you read the book of Acts, we know they don't finish in guilt and shame and absence. But when you read this account, where are they? They are not here. <laughs> Someone else is not here, and it's the disciples. Why were they not at the tomb with the women? It's the women who have the courage to get up early, and they get to the tomb, and they finish the preparations of the body. And isn't it revealing? The angel tells the women, go and tell his disciples and Peter that Jesus is waiting for them. Now, why is Peter named? Is he the most important? No, he's a leader. But maybe more than anyone else, Peter is wallowing in guilt and shame on Easter morning. Because he did the unthinkable. He denied Christ after boasting about, I'm going to be courageous, I'm going to be faithful, I'll be there to the end, everyone else say, fall away, I got you. Didn't work out like that. But the other disciples probably felt similar. They, they too fled in the garden. They too feared to show up to the crucifixion. And I would submit to you that guilt and shame are the features of many of our lives. That we too are haunted by what we have done. Or in the case of shame, we are haunted not just by what we've done, but who we are. And we know how we've messed up. We know the dark thoughts, the places our minds and hearts have gone. And guilt and shame, 
can sideline Christians, and it can keep people from Christ. Do you know why we read the words of assurance every Sunday that we read earlier in the service? I'll tell you a secret. It isn't just for you. It's for me, or it's for Frankie, or it's for whoever is up here, because there are Sundays when guilt and shame isn't just present in your life, it's present in ours, and and the person at the front is also thrashing around looking for a life raft, and we need to hear the words of life, that Easter is enough, that our sin has been dealt with, it's been cast away. There are some Sundays I'm like, we need to read it again. Like, I don't think it took the first time. We should read it again and again and maybe a third and a fourth time until it gets under our skin and we can begin to believe it. So if you are a person wrestling with guilt or shame, I will tell you again (laughs) that Christ died for your forgiveness and he was raised for your rightness, your justification with God, and he loves you. But one option is to end up in guilt or shame. Second option, you can end up in confusion and fear like the women. So the women, they're courageous. They show up at the tomb. They have a great start, but they have a rough ending. Because the ESV tells us, our translation, the trembling and astonishment seized them. It grabbed them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I think some of us are courageous enough to believe. But But we live lives where we don't say anything to anyone because of fear. And you're, you're like, I'm checking, I'm like, oh, I'm two for two <laughs> for both of these categories. And I understand the fear. You want people to like you. You want people to think you're normal. You want to have friends. The good news is when the Spirit comes at Pentecost, He transforms terrified people, which include the disciples, by the way. He transforms terrified people into brave witnesses. Uh, at Pentecost, they're all huddled in an upstairs room, and it's locked, and they're terrified of, of the Jewish leaders. But when the spirit of the risen Christ sort of gets onto them and gets into them, they surge out into the street, and they bear witness to what they have seen and heard. Look, to be a Christian, for goodness sake, it's not to be brash and obtrusive, but simply to be public. You you don't have to get a bumper sticker. You don't have to get a tattoo. That's fine. There there, there should be an obviousness to to your faith. And I wonder how many of us are stuck in fear and confusion. And we need the spirit of the resurrected Christ to come and dwell in us, fill us again. And the third and final option is just belief or unbelief. Just unstated at the end of Mark is this idea that one might hear the good news and walk away from it. Or one might hear the good news and become one of Jesus' people, a Christian. I will tell you, in, in history, many people have read these words. Many people have contemplated the empty tomb. But not all believe. In fact, I mean, like, it's kind of a, a terrible thought. Judas heard most of Jesus' sermons. It didn't take. In the end, he didn't believe. And so I just remind you today, there is a choice to believe in Christ. To believe he lived, to believe he died, to believe he rose again, ascended to the Father, and will one day come for the living and the dead. It is the mystery of faith. Christ died for you. He was raised for you. But you must take a hold of it. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful and we are thankful that you came and that you, that you rose and that the tomb was empty on Easter Sunday morning. And you raised never to die again, but to continue to lead your people into all places. We pray for all those contemplating you today, trying to figure out if all this is real, what it all means. 
Would you reveal yourself to them? May they know the resurrected Christ. And for those who already believe, may this, this, uh, this announcement, this gospel announcement land fresh in our hearts that we might be renewed in our love and our faith towards you. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.